Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 96. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. Fuleman, what is with this team? I think we should employ a new tactic today, Arvin. My thinking is that every time we say this team is good or has been good for the week prior to our episode... Or even, even not just has been good, but like has won games and put themselves in good position. Yeah, like things are going some approximation of well, and then as soon as we say that, even though it's true, they just fart around for a week. And so I think we need a bit of negative reinforcement here. We need to just keep saying the Leafs are crap um, all the time. That's all I can think of. This week it's easier because they kind of were. <laughs> they absolutely were. So the Leafs, last week when we talked about the Leafs, we said, hey, you know, they put together a three-game win streak. They didn't necessarily deserve all six points in the, out of the six that they, they got, but they got them, and the reality of the NHL is banked points put you in a very good position because the league is so random that it's hard to... Most teams don't go through long stretches of, you know, just losing streaks. Most good teams, especially, and the Leafs are like a, a good, at least mediocre team, right? So mm-hmm. good teams, once you get into a decent position, you know, it's hard to lose points to teams behind you because you can keep picking up points at a reasonable rate. And as long as you keep doing that, it doesn't even have to really, really be a reasonable rate. It just has to be a, a rate. You have to keep picking up like points, plural, not point, like the Leafs did over the past week. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do that, you're, you're typically fine. Yeah, and don't lose in regulation. Simple yeah, as that. Yeah, basically. Basically. It, it's super hard to make up ground on teams in front of you, right? It, it, because you have to outperform them by a pretty significant degree. Um, now, the Leafs uh, are testing this mathematical reality through a winless California road trip. They mm-hmm. went 0-2-1. Uh, they didn't deserve much more than that, frankly. They, they probably should have gotten a win in L.A. Jonathan Quick, you know, turned back the clock, turned in a great performance there. The other two games, they were just bad. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, e- even still, this is not like a sky is, the sky is falling moment. The Leafs' playoff position is still fine, mostly because Florida hasn't really done that well. No. But, yeah, it was a missed opportunity to really kind of put the nail in the coffin, and now it's still kind of up for grabs. The Leafs are still favorites. They're still the better team than Florida. They still have a lead over Florida. It's still Mm -hmm. hard to, you know, claw back points on teams in front of you who are around the same talent level as you. But, you know, we're we're not that far away from from it being a real toss-up. Like another, uh, if if this losing streak continues, basically, we're, we're in a bit of trouble. We're now at the point where Florida can tell themselves again that they control their own fate. Because if they win both their games in hand on us, and they beat us, and the next game they play against us, they'll be ahead. So, that's not the same as, you know, we're no longer the favorites. We still are to get the playoff spot. But the Leafs have frittered away an advantage to some extent here. Yes, like in that sentence, there were a few ifs there, right? And so if Florida wins their next two games and you know that's florida averages let's say i don't know 90 let's say they're on a 95 point pace right that's my just guess i don't have the standings in front of me so that is 1.15 points per game mm-hmm. on average right so if they get four points from that like or on average you can say okay they'll, they'll get you know two to three points from those four games right and in which right. case it's not as dire for the leafs they could get zero points they could get all four yeah right um so yeah there, there's ifs there but the Leafs are still in a okay position. It's just 
they, they really didn't play well. And actually, when, when you step back over a longer period of time, the Leafs haven't really, you know, dominated teams in, in a little bit. And to an extent, that's quite understandable uh, when you look at the Leafs' defense. Yeah, they simply do not have the personnel right now. I have to admit, I find it a little odd that Rasmus Sandin is not getting in every single game. I know that he's quite young. The idea is not to overtax him. There are a lot of players who are kind of in the rotation right now. I think Sheldon Keefe is still experimenting to some extent. But Rasmus Sandin, I think, has been quite good. Timothy Lilligren got sent down, and I kind of get it. He should be where he's playing. He wasn't being that effective in the NHL. Uh, you know, the numbers were kind of rough. Sandin is doing, I would say, pretty well. At least with the current group of defensemen, he looks to me like he's certainly one of the top six. And so it is a little perplexing to kind of see some of the decision-making that's going on here. Yeah, I, I mean, I tweeted something to this effect last night when, when the news came that Sandine and Lillian, um were scratched. In fact, Lillian was, was sent down. I'd prefer to play both of them. I, I know Lilligren's numbers have been bad, mm-hmm. right? And they have been bad, right? really really awful but they've been so awful that i think they're not actually that representative of him like i don't think he's a you know he's by far the worst possession player on the leafs i think part of that is just a bit of bad luck and when i watch him it doesn't look like he's a great nhl player he might not even be an nhl player at this point but he doesn't look awful to me right his numbers are bad but i think they lie a little bit in this case and i want to keep playing these guys because in theory Lilligren and Sandine are part of the Leafs' future. Now, I'm less—this matters less to me for Lilligren than for Sandine. Lilligren, um, given that his numbers are poor, poorer—actually, um, just straight-up poor, I'm fine with him just playing in the AHL. I just want him to be playing somewhere. I don't really think he develops by not playing, mm-hmm. right? So, ideal for me, if I'm making that decision, I want him to play third pair of minutes in the NHL. The next best thing is, okay, yeah, just go back to the AHL, keep playing there. That's fine. I don't really have an issue with that. With Sandine— as you, as you just said, he's been good in the NHL, right? Um, so I, I kind of don't really see what we get out of sitting him. I don't think the guys we're playing above him are significantly better. And even if they are a little bit better, Sandine, again, it could be a really important part of this team. Mm-hmm. developing him is really, really, really important. And not just developing him, but getting information about him is really important. This changes how the Leafs view the offseason. If Sandine, you know, plays really, really solidly over the next 12, 13 games, that gives you more information about, okay, what can we expect from him in the future? If he plays eight of those games, you have, you're, you've cut your sample size by 30%. Mm-hmm. And look, it's not a huge sample size either way, but I'd rather have more data than less data. Especially when the difference between Sandine and whoever we're playing above him is pretty minimal. If mm-hmm. and if anything, I, I would say Sandine is better than, you know, a lot of the other guys we're playing. Yeah, I mean to name specific names here, he's probably better than Callie Rosen, even though Rosen is more experienced. And Cody CC does sort of different things. Cody CC's relied on quite heavily on the penalty kill. I do find it kind of weird still not to choose to play Rasmus Sandin every chance we can get. Maybe there's some sort of directive going on there. Uh, my understanding of it is that he would have to actually be sent down if we're trying to avoid 
burning a year towards UFA status down the line. We've already burned a year on a ZLC, so that's done. But there is a 40 games on the roster limit that can potentially have some significance down the line. We'll see if the Leafs at some point try to avoid something happening there. At any rate, I have to say I don't love it. And I do think that right now, this is one of the first difficult stretches that Keith has kind of had in terms of other teams are starting to counter us in a meaningful way. I think that we just saw three California teams who are, granted, some of them are not bad defensively, but even so, they all are significantly lesser teams than the Leafs, and they all, to a large extent, stifled the Leafs' offense. Yes, I think that's the most concerning thing to come out of the last few days. It, it, when when you look at the Leafs' roster, it looks like their defense is, you know, obviously the weak spot with the injuries there, but their offense has really been what's cratered over the past few games. Yeah, and that ebbs and flows, to some extent, is understandable. I do think, you know, I don't, we talked about Mitch Marner last week. I, I think people are still going nuts on him and they're they're kind of frustrated about the contract and all that sort of stuff. That's a bit silly. I don't think he had a great week, though. Like, this was not the best seven days of his career. And I might consider, as a shakeup, putting him back with Tavares and putting William Nylander with Austin Matthews. Just because, one, we know that that can work. And two, right now, William Nylander looks like the best forward on the team. Like, he's had stretches where he seems like almost uniquely to be trying to to carry things forward. He had a pretty good game last night in Anaheim, which is not something that I can say for pretty much any other Leaf skater, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was quite poor all the way around. And I don't know, there's been talk about how the Leafs need more from their depth, and, and they do, but their their stars weren't good enough on this road trip. Right, yeah. And I say this as someone who believes that, generally speaking, the Stars have carried their weight this year. Mm-hmm. Right, like I don't think you can reasonably ask for anything more from Matthews or Nylander. Mm-hmm. Tavares, you know, ha- hasn't had been as good this year as he was last year. He's still been very good, I think. Marner has been getting a lot of criticism, especially recently. When you, look, when you step back and look at the numbers, he's still a phenomenal player. Yeah. I think those guys have been fine. And the Leafs' offense in general has been fine, and it's been fine because of those guys. But in the past week, you know, where the offense has dried up, yeah, it's been on those guys. And it's a little bit of a harsh thing to say, right? Because every team, every player goes through small slumps throughout a season. But the reality is that's, you know, we, we rely on them very, very heavily, right? Mm-hmm. We're not the team with the deepest group of forwards anymore. Our, our forward depth is honestly pretty poor at this point. Yeah, it's definitely a strength over depth equation now, whereas it used to be depth over strength, or at least depth combined depth and strength. strength. Really. Yeah, that was the idea. And, and so that's different now. You know, the paychecks are bigger. The reputations are bigger. The media attention is, well, it's always pretty intense, but it's more focused now. That doesn't make all the criticism going their way fair, but it does mean that we're going to demand a lot of them, and we're going to demand that they and the coach find ways to produce, to be effective, in games against teams that are just trying to play stifling hockey. Like, LA and Anaheim both played very aggressive defensive games, and the Leafs kind of still survived enough to outplay Los Angeles, as we've said, I think. But there are going to be 
teams that game plan for Toronto. Um, Justin Bourne has been talking about this too, you know. The Leafs are very clear on what they want to do. They want to possess the puck. They want to spend a lot of time in the offensive zone. They are willing to regroup rather than sort of give it away. They're going to have the third forward high that we've talked about previously. And now teams obviously know that. The Leafs have almost broadcast to the world that this is their strategy, but anyone scouting them is going to see it really quick. And so when teams start moving to counter that, what do you do next? What's your plan B? Can you have a plan B, or do you just keep hammering on plan A and hope that your talent is good enough to get by? Maybe that's preferable than trying to make changes to something else. But you see games last night where a supposedly very potent offensive lineup doesn't produce, and you think, is that a one-off, or is that a sign that some teams are getting better at seeing what the Leafs are doing? Right now, as we've said, macro picture, the Leafs are still producing a lot. They're still a really high-scoring team. This could be a blip. Maybe it's just how it goes. And the Leafs could have won last night. They certainly could have won in Los Angeles. Some, you know, and that will skew our analysis. I'm just thinking there is going to be a certain amount of game planning, especially if we do make it to the playoffs. You know, the opposing coach is going to try to adjust to defend the Leafs in a way that you see less of in the regular season. So I hope that we're not too one-dimensional, I suppose is what I would say, even though I think that it's generally a good game plan and it's had some great results. Maybe... You know, if we keep trying at it, the balances start going our way and then everything looks fine again. I just expect there to be an increasing level of adaptation on the part of the competition. And we got to be ready for that. Yeah, I, Anaheim kind of dealt with that third forward high just by kind of ignoring him. Mm-hmm. Right. And it makes sense. And to be clear, I don't think this is like, oh, some panacea that, you know, the, the Leafs have been figured out. Right. The, the no. reality is that has negative aspects to it as well. Right. You're you're allowing uncontested possession right at the top of the at the top of the zone that's not the most dangerous spot on the ice but if you get shots through from there you get rebounds tips right like the the Leafs under Randy Carlisle had that kind of accordion thing where the wingers would stay super low in the zone defensively and it just would always leave the points open right mm-hmm. and it did actually suppress shot quality but you know we weren't able to get the puck out ever right and you, you can argue something similar would happen here I don't think it's a perfect choice for um, for teams, but yeah, the Leafs have to prove that they can beat it, right? Exactly, um, yeah. And I think they can. I, this isn't the first team to try that, right? It's not like a, this isn't some novel concept of like, what if we just don't follow the guy into that undangerous part of the ice, right? It's it's, mm-hmm. the, mo- it's the most obvious thing you would try. Um, so I, I don't think this is, I don't think this spells doom for the Leafs' offensive system in general, but yeah, the, the offense was very much stifled on the, on this road trip, and it needs to improve. Um, and if it doesn't, well, even if we do make the playoffs, we might still limp in, but we don't have much of a shot against Tampa if, you know, that's a firefight and they come with an AK-47 and we come with a bow and arrow. <laughs> yeah, that's about the size of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a frustrating road trip first and foremost, because, again, the Leafs' consolation is usually that they can always score, at least, and so they never feel all the way out of it. Uh, and you always think that they have a chance to kind of charge back. When previously we pinned a lot of our complaints on the goaltending, and I think the goaltending was bad. This week the goaltending was actually very good. Uh, Freddie Anderson was terrific in Los Angeles. He still has a shutout, technically. And 
Jack Campbell was good, I thought, in San Jose, or at least as good as could be hoped, and he was great in Anaheim. So it's not on that end of it anymore, and you just keep thinking, could we ever get to the point where we're good at multiple things at once? There's still a lot of potential in this team. I keep thinking, if you get Riley and Muzzin back, the defense is orders of magnitude better, and Sandine, and this, by the way, is one of many reasons I want him in the lineup, he's a good stretch passer. And the stretch pass was a meme last year under Babcock, and it was a whole thing. But if they're forechecking you really aggressively, sometimes the solution is, can you put someone behind them? That's um, a neutral zone kind of strategy. That doesn't apply to the stuff about the third forward high when you're already set up in the other end. But it gives us more weapons. And so you can start to think of how the Leafs might get a lot better just with better personnel coming back. But yeah, I mean, the bottom line is it's frustrating when you come away with one point against three generally pretty bad teams. And that's not something that you really can afford in a, in a playoff race unless the other team is scuffling as badly as you are. And Florida has done us the courtesy of mostly scuffling pretty hard. So. Yeah, it's... With the, with this team, um, I think the other thing that has to be said, Keith makes some weird decisions. He really does. Mm. And... Look, this is this is not like a turning on Sheldon Keefe thing. I I think we've been pretty clear, both of us, straight um, from the start, is that we think Keefe is like fine. He's not a you know god emperor savior of the franchise. He's mm-hmm. not a moron. Clearly, like I I I believe a lot of the same things I believe about Mike Babcock. I, I believe that he has a thought process. I believe he goes through that thought process. I don't think he does things for you know obviously stupid reasons mm-hmm. right um we talked last week about the whole kerfoot thing um and th- they did put kerfoot at third line center and funny enough that third line has actually been pretty solid um throughout all three games they're not going to be the ones to lead you to success but i think they they did all right the puck didn't really go in for them but that's that's not e- any of their strong points necessarily um the sandine thing is weird i i don't quite understand that still as, as we covered yeah I, I i i think it's worth noting that there's some weird roster decisions that are going on here that i don't quite understand that doesn't mean they're inherently dumb it means i don't quite understand them yeah someone mentioned to me online actually that you know Callie rosen was leaned on pretty heavily at the ahl level where he is uh, a first pair defenseman and he's a somewhat more mature player Maybe he feels more reliable in certain respects to Keefe, or at least enough that, you know, he wants to cycle him in, make sure of what he has, all that sort of stuff. Maybe he just doesn't want to keep a guy up all the time, kind of cooling his heels in the press box. But, yeah, I'm not sure that I think it was the right move. It's a lot easier to say that after a loss than after a win, of course. So, you know, you have to have some patience with experimentation, too. Coaches have to be able to try things. The main knock on Mike Babcock was his reluctance to try things. And I think Sheldon Keefe is certainly more experimental. He's certainly willing to change on the fly. His lines are a lot less fixed. Except, seemingly, uh, the Matthews-Marner combination. And as I was saying earlier, I think I might look at shifting that around just for a bit. Just for the sake of maybe it's a bit of a shot in the arm. Maybe it helps them get out of a bit of a funk. 
it's not a knock on any of the players involved or to say that Matthews Marner doesn't work in some sort of macro sense. It's just that's the kind of thing that I think you do when you're trying to pull a lever as a coach, when you're trying to find something that can help change the way that things seem to be going. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm not averse to trying it. I also don't mind just keeping it as is. Yeah. I mean, the odds are it will work itself out. Mm-hmm. There's too much talent there not to. So, yeah, it's not like I think that that's an especially glaring thing that we have to adjust to right now. So, yeah. It's, it's, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just saying in the macro, it's not that I think Keith is doing a bad job or anything. It's just that now he has some particular challenges. His experimental instincts are kind of running up against we are still in a playoff dogfight. We're going to see what he kind of has down the stretch to try and get the best performances out of a team that has a lot of holes, especially right now. And if we do make it to the playoffs, I am really curious to see how he tries to adjust his game. He's supposedly pretty good at that at the AHL level. He was more adaptive from game to game in terms of trying to game plan for the opposition. And again, that is a much more pronounced thing in the playoffs. We'll see if he's able to make the adjustments. The Leafs are still in a good position for the playoffs. They really, again, just have to outperform Florida. Montreal is still eight points back. And so unless they nearly run the table, we don't well, have to But if, if you give them the eight points they lost against the Red Wings, <laughs> that fixes everything. So I think oh, they're still Jack in it. Todd. Yeah, you know, who, who can rule that out? Uh, yeah, this is just an aside. Jack Todd, who's like one of the worst columnists in sports, I'm going to say argued that the problem with the Habs wasn't talent because if they hadn't lost so much to Detroit, they would be right in the thick of the playoff race. And it's like, do you think that maybe losing a lot of games to the worst in the NHLs has something about your talent? I don't know. But um, that's an aside. Anyway, it's never going to feel super great when you pull one point out of three games against bad teams. Like that's just a bad week. That was a very low end outcome for a team of this caliber. And you got to hope for better and that it's just a a little bit of a swing. I don't know if I want to make anything out of the Leafs still don't seem to do very well on back to backs. Like I can't tell if that's just, it happens to be a coincidence. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, you, you wonder to some point, it's like, okay, are these guys, like, not physically fit enough? But I don't think that's it, right? Because this wasn't an issue in prior years. Like, we were poor on back-to-backs, maybe because of goaltending at times. But we didn't routinely just get destroyed on back-to-backs from a skater perspective. So, I don't I don't know why that seems to be. Uh, it's, it's weird. Um, traditionally, being on the back-to-back is, like, essentially provides the same level of disadvantage as being the road team Mm -hmm. right so like a home team on a back-to-back against a rested road team is essentially a 50 50 game right so it's 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 not that huge that's not that huge a difference or at least it shouldn't be on average but um yeah we're we're getting we got destroyed last night like in the first couple periods especially it was really almost shameful i would say um jack campbell was really the only one keeping us in it yeah, it was not an impressive performance anyway. And again, Anaheim is really bad and also has a ton of injuries right now. Yeah, so, I mean, Anaheim's calling card, stuff that they have one, is that they actually do have a legitimately good defense core. 
right? Mm-hmm. E- e- even as a team is poor, their defense core is still good, right? Um, Cam Fowler, Hampus Lindholm, Josh Manson, none of them played last night. So, yeah, there's not really any excuse, you know, and this is a team that is miles out of the wild card. Like, they're done. 100% they're done. And so, like, what's the explanation here? We're getting clobbered by a team with, um, what is that present, a minus 39 goal differential on the season? Like, that's kind of gross. And one that is missing several key players. It was just a, a disappointing performance. So, yeah, the Leafs are going into another pretty serious week, and it's kind of time to to get it together because, unfortunately, the competition is going to get a lot harder. We did not take advantage of a week of pretty easy competition, even if we were on the road the whole time. So, you know, you got to get it together, and you've got to keep ahead of Florida. Simple as that. Yep. All right, uh, let's move on. So you suggested a, a pretty, I guess, a fun game um, of... Uh, actually, what should we call this? It, it's basically, what would Kyle Dubas change if he had, like, a time machine? Exactly. The Kyle Dubas time machine. Now, the rules of the Kyle Dubas time machine are that he can't do anything that would be, like, insane without foresight. Like, I don't want him to make some sort of acquisition that no one could have seen made sense at the time, but that would have turned out good. I'm thinking, knowing what he knows now how would he choose differently from like the reasonable options in front of him? You know, like what could he have done differently? If he gets to go back to the start of his GM tenure, what changes does he make? I think he fires Mike Babcock as quick as he can. Yes. I I, I think so. This is an interesting question. And we kind of debated this offline a bit. I think we both agree that he fires Mike Babcock earlier than what actually ended up happening in, in real life. Um, but does that happen during the 2019 offseason or the 2018 offseason? Yeah, like, the other question is, does he have the authority? Right, and that's kind of been hanging over that whole thing. Right, and reportedly, he, he did that. one of the reasons we feel strongly about this is that he reportedly wanted to fire Babcock this offseason. It was reported, right? And, yeah. And it speaks, I wouldn't say, like, to a dysfunctional franchise, but it speaks to a franchise with, you know— a kind of an unfair power structure if he wasn't allowed to, because in theory, he should be. That's his job. Mm-hmm. Right? So is he, is he muzzled to some extent? Um, I think Shanahan would probably disagree with that, right? Like, from everything Shanahan has said, yeah, we trust Kyle. He's the guy. You know, I'm there to sign off on big things, but I don't get involved in the day-to-day. That's Kyle. And, I mean, yeah. firing the coach is a big thing, but you would also think it's something that if the GM wants to fire a coach, they will. Right, and they should be able to because if you want to fire a coach, you're probably not going to be able to work with them in a productive way this year. And that was something that Dubis mentioned, and when he did eventually fire Babcock, that like we we couldn't become simpatico was the term he used. Yeah, and you know, there's also the the idea of okay, let's say that it's not a hard and fast no, you can't do this, but that Dubis is conscious of his ability to make this kind of decision. So he's thinking, you know, he goes to Shanahan and like, oh, I think it might be time to move on from Mike. You know, I've got Sheldon waiting in the wings here. I think we're ready to move in a different direction. And, you know, you can envision Shanahan saying, oh, are you sure about that, Kyle? I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a big change to be making this early. Are you sure you can't work with him? It's still up to you, but, you know, 
from a rational perspective, you're kind of burning some of your your credibility as a GM. You know, if you do this right away and it doesn't work, you are shortening your own tenure considerably. So there may have been other factors there that aren't the binary he could have fired him or he couldn't have. It seems clear left to his own devices. It would have been earlier. It's just a question of when. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the one kind of very, very obvious change. Um, mm-hmm. The second very obvious change that we discussed was he probably re-signs Mitch Marner in the summer of 2018. Yes. That's easy enough to say with hindsight. That said, we said at the time, Mitch Marner is not signing for less than $9 million AAV. And... Obviously, with hindsight, you'd rather him at $9 million AAV than what he signed for, which is 10.9 over six years. But at that time, the Nylander and Matthews negotiations were waiting in the wings. Hadn't concluded those yet. That would have been a lot. Um, it probably raises the price on Nylander. It very possibly raises the price on Matthews, who obviously isn't taking less. Now, Matthews isn't taking less now anyway. But you do wonder how that echoes through the the other signings that you make. And I wonder a little bit if it nets out to more savings in the end. Like, I think he would still probably have preferred to do it. But right now, Nylander is the best value contract of the big four. And I think this raises the price on him. Yeah. Because the gap between the two of them was not perceived to be that big at the time. Yeah, I, I think the... One of the other things that that makes a difference here is, or I guess one of the other analogs we can draw, is I think it would be kind of similar to a, to the Dreisaitl deal, where at the time, when Dreisaitl was signing for 8 by 8.5, was like, you could have got him for less, right? And then he exploded, and he's become worth far more than that deal. But given yeah. what he, given his comparables at the time, I think they still could have got him for less, right? It would have ended yeah. up being kind of the same where it's like okay you, you know you probably shouldn't sign Mitch Marner to nine million in the summer of 2018 but it, given that he assuming that he explodes the same way um he did in reality that's a deal that retroactively looks better even if you could have done better at the time the ripple effect on Nylander is the interesting thing um because yeah their, their statistical resumes are pretty similar at that time um Nylander was a year older which I think he's always been like a worse prospect in that regard, right? Marner's kind of matched him while being a year younger at every step of the way. Um, But yeah, like it's what, how does that change the Nylander negotiation? I don't think any of us really know. Yeah, it would be very hard to perceive. And it was such a fraught negotiation in terms of how that one went down. They've all kind of been a, a bit of difficult negotiations across the board. I think maybe more realistically, or maybe this works out better. Maybe he just uh, like gives into Nylander's demands, so to speak, earlier, resulting in no missed time. So maybe let's say that adds, you know, two hundred fifty thousand to Nylander's deal. So instead of right. making six point nine six, he's making let's just say seven point two five, right? And for, right. for apparently, like the difference between that entire like protracted negotiation between Dubis and Nylander in his camp was over a relatively small amount of money. That was the stupid. Yeah, thing. it turned into a pride thing. Yeah, no, and, and when when it came out, it's like, really, you guys were arguing over like basically seven point five versus six point five this entire time, and then it like narrowed, and at a certain point, you're arguing between like seven and seven point two five. Yeah, right. Like, 
But let's let's say I don't know. Let's be really uncharitable and say they sign him to seven point five, um, before the season. Now mm-hmm. that's a contract that is, I think, a bit of an overpay, given like relative to to Neil Andrews Pierce, mm-hmm. right? But you get him in immediately with uh, during training camp, all that stuff. You avoid some of the headache from from the following year. Not all of it, because as as we've covered, Neander was actually pretty much fine after about a month and a bit into the season, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, he couldn't buy a goal. Just his shooting percentage was terrible. Yeah, and as expected, his shooting percentage has since rebounded this season, and now he's a 30-goal man, you know? That was not a huge, unforeseeable event, to be honest, because he was never going to shoot that badly. Going yeah, forward. I mean, uh, one thing that must be said, and I I think I'm going to have to say this a bunch in the offseason, I don't expect Nylander to be a 30-goal guy next year. He's having a really hot year. Yeah. Yeah, and so that may not repeat itself. It's fine. He can still be really, really valuable. Yes. As he is. And, you know, the fact that he's on the first power play unit bunch, uh, that helps. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, he may not repeat this. He may be more in the 25, 30 range. But, yeah. In terms of game planning, sort of how those three work out, the way that Kyle Dubas did those things makes some sense to me, even though I think that he overpaid Matthews a little bit and Marner a lot. Just because he has this Nylander negotiation, he's trying to set a tone so he really holds his ground to quite literally the last minute. And then the Matthews thing, he's thinking, okay, the price is going up the longer I wait. I probably can't do this anymore. Needless to say, also... Um, he probably signs Matthews earlier if he can do it. The rumor is that he could have been had cheaper in the offseason, the same time as, as Marner. So maybe it would have paid to be proactive. With the benefit of hindsight, you know, that's the point of the time machine. To some extent, you can say, okay, I'm better off cashing all of these in now than taking a wait-and-see approach. The other thing is, I wonder if, this again, the smart play is just to use, a, I guess, a bit of a, you know, this isn't an amazingly progressive term, but what if Kyle kind of just grows a pair and, like, tells... (laughs) with the Marner negotiation? Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Like, kind of take control of that, and the Leafs really acted like they were in a position of weakness there. And they were to an extent. Yeah. Right? That that system, or that kind of negotiation was tailor-made for Marner to have leverage. And, you know, some people said, oh, Marner has no leverage, and we kind of consistently said, no, that's not true. He does have leverage. Mm-hmm. I think the Leafs still could have used their own. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there were the beginnings of some desire to kind of play hardball right towards the end of that negotiation. Like, Kyle Dubas played very nice, and I think that he tried to be reasonable. I've said this before, and this is certainly getting into some speculative territory, but I get the impression that he tried to be basically a reasonable man making a fair offer. And... That wasn't really getting him anywhere, and he finally was starting to stiffen up midway through the month of September, and then a deal got done at still too much money. I do think, you know, maybe Kyle Dubas has to come in and say, like, look, you are not taking us to the cleaners here. And the rumor is Marner turned down offer sheets. That would have been pretty considerable. I don't know if that's true. I don't know what size they were. 
Right, but I, I think I it's also have like dared him to sign them. Exactly, right? Like, yeah. Mitch, do you so. do you really want to be the most hated player in Toronto? Yeah. Do you want right. it? Like, and you know, maybe he's willing to risk it, but you can't let that govern your decision making. I think and, Dubis spent you know. too long trying to look for a win-win in that negotiation mm-hmm. when it became when it was very clear early on that the Marner camp wasn't really interested in a win-win. Yeah, and that's. You know, again, not a real knock on Mitch. I don't hold this against him on a, from a personal perspective. The way that 100% some agree. Do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's got a right to pursue his own interests. He wants to get paid big. He's a great player. Good. Go for it. But it's a business transaction from that angle. And so it has to be met with a similar level of commercial savviness on the other side. And so, yeah, that's kind of how that one went down. I'm sure if you ask Kyle Dubas, he would say he does not think that that negotiation ended as well as it could have for him. I feel pretty confident that that's one of the things that he would revise, given the chance. Yeah. Um, some of yeah. the other things have, have held up actually pretty well. First of all, Kyle Dubas's drafts, and admittedly it's early, so it hasn't had time for a lot of crazy things to happen. But they both look quite strong. I was looking at... Players picked after Rasmus Sandin, who went 29th overall in 2018. And then Nick Robertson, who went 53rd overall last year. And I could not find a single player who was picked after them that I want now to have been picked instead. Like, normally there's some guy you point to and say, oh, we should have got Braden Point or something like that. Just with benefit of hindsight. Right now, they still look like extremely strong picks where they were taken. And that's to Dubas's credit, you know, even at this early stage and knowing that things are going to change and development is very fluid. Sandin and Robertson look like A plus picks and I'm pretty happy with the way the rest of the draft went too. Yeah. Yeah. So that part is positive. Uh, the Patrick Marlowe thing, I think he was a little bit over a barrel. Well, I've talked about this before. He didn't have a ton of alternative options and Maybe this was the best one. Maybe that was the going right to fully get rid of the contract, which he needed to do. So you probably live with that. Uh, Zaitsev for CC, you do that every day. As much as CC frustrates me, you get out of the Zaitsev contract as fast as you can, and I'm glad he did. And then it comes to Kadri for Kerfoot and Barry. Yes. And that's yes. the tough one. <laughs> I don't think he. I don't think he changes this deal. No, you don't think so. Eh? No, I. I mean, as much as we don't like Tyson Berry very much as as a player, he's a league average defenseman or thereabouts. Let's say below league league average. Let's say he's a, he's a three four in general, and he makes two point seven five this year. He's essentially a stopgap. Mm-hmm. The I think the real benefit of that trade was where we think Kerfoot can be relative to Kadri. Kerfoot's not as good as Kadri, but I think a lot of the things that make Kadri better than Kerfoot are not things that are necessarily that useful in his third line role, right? Kadri's a much better offensive player than Kerfoot, has a much more shooting talent. He would do a lot Mm -hmm. better in that left wing spot um, on one of the top two lines than, than Kerfoot has. There's no doubt about that. He's much better on the power play than Kerfoot is. 5v5, I don't think there is that enormous a difference between them. I think we downgraded slightly 
but got lo- a lot more team control and mm-hmm. uh, a lower cost player. So I, I think that deal is fine. I, I genuinely do. And Barry, to me, and I, I think I said this at the time, we were a little unconvinced on Barry, but I said, like, I don't think we're going to resign Barry. Right? I think Barry was a no, rental. No, and I start. definitely don't think we're going to resign Barry now. No, yeah. no. Like, th- it was a one year. So. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I think that that's true. And it's hard to find the alternative deal that's better. You know, Nazem Kadri was blocking other transactions, although, as we've talked about, the rumored deal that he blocked to Calgary would have been worse for us. So I'm glad that that didn't happen. But in dealing him out, you had to both get something at third line center because, as we've seen, the Leafs don't have a hell of a lot after Kerfoot. And you also had to upgrade in some way on defense. I have to admit, that's a tough trick to pull off, even with a value piece like Kadri. And so, granted, you know, we gave up Callie Rosen and we got him back basically for free because it was for Michael Hutchinson. And then we downgraded from a third to a sixth, which doesn't really matter. It's possible this was as good as we were going to do, you know? And as much as I have ragged on Barry in the past, I've ranted about him as listeners are painfully familiar at this point. He is a player. We did get a guy who can play right defense at a competent NHL level. He's dueling with Justin Hall for effectiveness on a game-to-game basis. That's not great. You should be better than that if you're as touted as he is. But it's possible this was just the best resolution on the table. I can't say I would go back and undo it because I think they were in a position where they probably needed to try something. You know? If we'd been going into this year, we would have a deeper and stronger forward lineup, we would be weaker at defense. And I don't know if that would have netted out any differently. The the Kadri thing, it I have to say, is also influenced by the fact that he got himself tossed out of two consecutive playoff series. Yeah. And doesn't that help. doesn't mean that you have to trade him, but that does give you some question about, like, what am I going to do with this guy? And, you know, he's also... Uh, coming up on 30 years old. He's still on a good contract, but it's possible his value was not going to go up. Yeah, I think that's kind of the... There's this old Bill Belichick saying that, um, you know, you'd rather sell or give up on a guy a year too early than a year too late. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think if there's an error in the Kadri deal, it's that, but that's an acceptable error. Uh, Kadri's next deal, I don't don't think is going to be great. I hope he gets a shit ton of money because, like, I love Naz. Um, yeah, I just don't want to be the team paying him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's possible that the end for him is not going to be pretty in terms of he's a pretty physical player. He's had some some ups and downs with injuries, not to a huge extent, to be honest. He's actually he's pretty healthy in Toronto, but I'm just thinking of this year. He's experienced some injuries. Maybe those won't have any lingering effects. But you always have in the back of your mind as your guys approach 30, okay, how much longer do I want to be on the hook here? And so we've accepted that wholesale with Jake Muzzin, for example, or with John Tavares. But I can understand why that is also something that weighs on the scales of a, of a cadre transaction. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's possible that, you know, maybe that's just how it is. And maybe he doesn't undo it. And maybe on net, you know, you look at this body of work and you think, Kyle Dubas has done a pretty good job. There wouldn't be a huge number of things that he would change. He would free up probably some cap space by approaching the deals with the big three differently. Uh, he would have his coach in place sooner. And then beyond that, you know, what's the magic bullet acquisition that he should make? Maybe you say, with hindsight, he knows that he should trade Andreas Janssen or something. But that requires a real level of clairvoyance. One, in terms of if you're trying to avoid the injury. And ter- two, in terms of knowing that Ilya Mikhaev can step in in a big way. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought there was an argument for trading Janssen in the summer, but mm-hmm. I don't think he was getting you a whole lot. And even with, he did have an elevated shooting percentage, right? I think Drag Like Poor at the Leafs Nation has mentioned that, like, you know, maybe they should have traded him when he, the stock was obviously high. Um, and it's a similar argument I used for when Connor Brown had a hot rookie year that was fueled by some empty net goals and a high shooting percentage. And and yeah, I think that makes sense, but there's a few differences between Janssen and Brown. One, I think Janssen's legitimately just a better player. Their Leafs are organizationally weaker at left wing, and unless you were really confident in Mikhaev, yeah, I don't, I don't see like Janssen was at worst our second best left wing, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming into the season. So, and I, I yeah. don't think his value is high enough that he really gets you a piece in a in a defenseman trade. Um, on the Dubas thing, yeah, I think. The only thing you could really say, aside from the moves that we've mentioned, and I hope we haven't forgotten any, um, someone might tweet uh, us. There's like, one, actually, one last thing that I want to okay. add. Sure. And this one it. he definitely, I think, would have re- redone, is you got to move on a backup goalie sooner. Yeah. Yeah, true. Like this season. That's, I mean, y- you get Jack Campbell quicker if you can do it, but like this is, <laughs> like, the Hutchinson experiment, and I get what he was thinking. He thought, okay, maybe Hutch will be okay. Maybe Michael Neuwirth will have his body functioning at a level where he can still play NHL goaltender. But when those two things fell through, we were kind of screwed. And it probably did cost us, you know, six to eight points in the standings. He, he rolled the dice. He rolled a pair of dice twice and got snake eyes both times. Right? Like, it's... Yeah. The thing is, every other move is... And we talked about this with the Campbell trade. Every move you can think of for a backup goalie is also a roll of the dice because you it's you don't know when a goalie's essentially just going to spontaneously combust. Right. And so the only question is when should he have rolled the dice again? Like how how He's probably how quick, waited too long. For, how quick is okay, yeah. we cannot have another Michael Hutchinson start. And it, it, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to say, "Oh, you know, the first one." But that's cuz we know he was awful the rest of the year. Right? There, there yeah, are how paths. much room do you give him to regress to something positive before exactly. you start thinking, okay, it's not coming? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of paths yeah. where a Michael Hutchinson-level player starts off awful and then has a few games of, like, just not being completely unplayable, and that is enough. He had a few decent games in the course of this year. Mm-hmm. Like, not that it's going to be remembered, because the net impact was awful. Don't get me wrong. There was bad at the start and bad towards the end. And a few good ones in the middle. But, you know, it, it is worth kind of remembering how difficult it is to make those decisions. That said, we got killed in the games that he started. And so, certainly with hindsight, Dubas wants to avoid that. It's just a question of how much of that was foreseeable. I think he still should have moved sooner. 
but it's not as obvious as maybe it would seem. So I, I do cut him some slack on that one. Yeah, so what, what I was going to um, mention uh, before we got on that point was the other criticism you can make of him is that he hasn't made, it's the moves he hasn't made as opposed to the moves he has made, right? Mm-hmm. It's like jazz. You have to listen to the moves he isn't making. <laughs> Kyle Dubas, more like Miles Davis. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. But then I think, I don't know, we, we've talked about this before. That's hard to judge from our perspective. We don't know what trades are on the table. That's always what it's going to come down to with this is go win a trade is, you know, we've said that that's not really a strategy because that may not be doable. You may not have Peter Chiarelli willing to give you a lopsided deal. Maybe you do and you've got to shake the leaves regularly. I will say for one thing, Brian Burke made some pretty decent trades as much as we've ragged on him, I think rightly here for a lot of his other mistakes. He did occasionally make robbery trades like the ones for Gardner or for JVR. And he said, I want to call every other GM in the NHL every 10 days. Like I want to have that cycle of communication where I'm hearing, what are you looking for? What guys are you considering parting with? Just so I know. I assume Kyle Dubas is doing all sorts of prudent things on that front. And if he weren't, I would say, you know, you should, Make sure that you're more in the loop. But once you get to that baseline, you know, we can't know what's out there. We can't judge the lack other than to observe it exists. And to wonder if we should have beaten the the going price on a particular trade, if that would have been viable. You know, a lot of the defense moves that we've seen made are not especially ones that I would envy. And I still think the Jake Buzzin trade is quite strong. I think that's held up pretty well. So... Yeah, I agree. The one thing I'll say is, and this is a high standard, Dubas hasn't fleeced a team. Yeah, that's true. Right? So, you know, we we saw, for example, um, Nino for Rask, right? We've seen some bad trades in the past little bit. We've seen Nino for Rask. That was a a big one. I think Kasha from the Ducks was a pretty bad trade for the Ducks. Um, Granted, Kasha might have some injury issues, but... I, I think even if even if Kasha is a nothing, that's a pretty awesome trade from the Bruins' perspective. Um, there was another bad one this year from Minnesota. Who did they trade? Zucker. Yes, Zucker. Yes, that was another. Like these aren't deals that are necessarily good fits for the Leafs, right? But they are deals that mm-hmm. happened. And it's like, okay, can Dubis get in on one of those? Right? Again, that's a high standard, very very high standard. It's unfair in some sense, but you capture a lot of value that way. The biggest thing that I think of is the trick is finding the undervalued defenseman because once defensemen get to a certain level of value, a certain reputation, they do become hard to acquire. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys who are playing hard minutes, who are renowned throughout the league, those guys seem to be pretty highly valued. The rumored price on Jonas Brodin, who I wanted to take a look at, so did lots of other people, was enormous. Like apparently Minnesota said, give us Nylander. Well, that would have been insane. And so obviously Dubas turning that down, if it was actually on the table, is smart. If you run into a wall of prices like that, then there's not much you can do except throw up your hands and walk away. And so I'm trying to strike the balance between, you know, justifying all sorts of inaction and also recognizing the fact that it may not be out there. I think he's made creative trades. I thought the Barry trade was creative. 
you know, like uh, getting 50% salary retention, um, sort of fine-tuning it with a pick swap, all that sort of stuff. Like, I think that he's certainly trying to be innovative. He's trying to find solutions that he's going to need to have to operate under the cap structures that he's under now. We're still waiting, as you said, for the fleecing. We're still waiting for some big home run deal. And there's been a terrific free agent signing in John Tavares. There have been some great drafts. There have been a lot of things to like. It's just he hasn't been able to hit that home run that puts us into the top tier. Maybe it's not doable, but it's kind of down to him to try because, you know, what else can you do? Yeah, pretty much. Um, All right, should we move on? We have a couple bad takes to discuss. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, um, we both had one, actually. Um, it's kind of a joint one, to be honest, because we, we just both agree that it's it, it's quite stupid. But do you want to start with the LeBrun one? or? Yeah, let's do it. So Pierre LeBrun, um, renowned friend to all people on Hockey Twitter, says, I know Gary Bettman has vehemently disagreed with me on this, but the parody again in the standing screams for creating a best-of-three play-in either involving four teams for the two wild cards card spots on each side, or at least number eight versus number nine on each side. Could play it over three days. Way overdue. I don't like that. No. Okay. I don't want to do that. I'm with Gary Bettman on this, and I am vehement with him. Yeah, so it's... There's a couple weird things about this. For one, the NHL playoffs are, like, universally recognized to be the best playoffs in North America, in North American sports. They're amazing. They're awesome. They're so good. The first round, it, if anything, they're too long. That's the only criticism mm-hmm. I could have. They're too long. But the first round is so much fun, right? The second round is when you really like narrow it down. You're getting really high-quality hockey. And then in the last two rounds, it's, you know, the meaning, obviously the meaningfulness of those games is, is very palpable, very intense. It's a really, really great playoff system. Um <clears throat> just because, you know, hockey lends itself well to playoffs, especially when you're a neutral fan, right? Watching your team yeah. in the playoffs is absolute agony. Um, but, so it, there's a, a huge part of it that is, okay, look, it's not broken. Let's not fix it. Yeah, and of all the things that you could fix about this league, and boy, do I got suggestions if they're asking, this is the one that you leave. This is the one that you say that's okay. <laughs> and so... That's just the starting point here, is that of all the problems to attack and to deem way overdue, I think that's nuts. But, yes. Yeah, go ahead. The The next thing is, I genuinely don't see how the two sentences he has in that tweet relate to one another in any way at all. So he's like, there's more parity, therefore we should allow more teams into the playoffs and make the playoffs higher variance. It's like, oh, you know, I really like oranges. That's why all children nowadays should get an education about how to use computers. <laughs> they're, they're unrelated. I just don't see yeah. it. Right? Like, yeah, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, here's the point, I guess, is what he's saying. is like, okay, there's so much parity, so there are a lot of teams in that kind of bubble territory where they're between 7th and 10th in the conference. And so some of them will get in and some of them will get out. And he's like, I guess, because of all this parity that we've got hanging around, we should give those teams another chance. But it's like, we have a process to pick the most deserving of those bubble teams. And it's an 82-game regular season. That's what it does. And 
it's more likely to get the best team out of that group into a playoff spot than a short play-in tournament, which could go any which way but lose, because any team can lose two out of three to any other team in the NHL. Um, Boston has lost two out of three to Detroit this year. So, you know, it doesn't address really what he seems to be talking about. And even then, I'm putting a reading on his parody to try and make it make sense. Yeah, because I I think I don't know that it does. I think you're on point there. Like, essentially, what he's saying is, you know, the teams in the middle are so close to one another, it's impossible to choose between them. So instead, we'll basically flip a coin between them. Right. Yeah. With with, with uh, it was what a three game series is. Like I know it's decided on the ice. It's not an actual coin flip. But I mean, that's essentially just saying it's just deferring the decision of okay, these we're separating these teams by how they've done in a eighty two game regular season versus we're separating these teams based on how they're doing in this playoff series against one another. The other thing is this. This also just moves the bar down, right? There, yeah. There's a lot of parity in the NHL in general, right? And that's in part because hockey is a high variant sport in general it's hard for one team to really really leap above the rest so most teams end up in a pretty similar level of effectiveness um the second is the nhl point system inherently makes it that way with the point you get for losing in overtime or in a shootout it compresses the standings from a kind of visual perspective but that doesn't mean it's you know actually this is the same quality of team right it's because Mm -hmm. the standing system is is sort of illogical in a lot of ways the other thing is already 16 teams make it into the playoffs in a 31 team league yeah soon to be 32 and yeah lebrun has commented like he had a follow-up tweet today where it's like you know there's 32 teams in the league soon it's 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 time to expand the playoff field it's like why why are we so accepting of mediocrity right yeah like it's already a very generous system where a lot of teams get in and aren't that great you know, and you know, hockey has average. had, yeah, hockey has had some major 8v1 upsets, don't get me wrong, and that's fine, but like, there should be some value for the regular season, or it's all a waste of time. The NHL has had issues with this before in the past, like in the 80s, the Leafs consistently had terrible teams, but the structure got them into round one some years, despite them having awful, awful records, and it's like, I don't think that that's worthwhile. There are enough slots to give people hope, enough that half the fans in the league, half the fan bases in the league, get to enjoy themselves in the playoffs or experience excruciating pain in the playoffs, one of the two. And I don't really see a reason to expand beyond that other than Pierre Lebrun talks to a lot of GMs. A lot of GMs would like uh, to have the credibility of a playoff appearance because it'll help their job security. And then if you sell more playoff-ish games, there's more revenue for teams. And that may be eventually what decides it, but I don't think that there's any gameplay quality argument for this at all. I genuinely think that it's kind of silly. I will say someone suggested, okay, if two teams tie for the eighth spot on points, instead of going to regulation wins, we could have a one-off play-in game. Yeah, that's fine. And I think that that's cool and fun. Like, that's fine because they are tied anyway, and it would be kind of one game of variance regardless. But if you prove yourself better over a regular season, I think that that should be the end of that. And I don't think that we need to explain the playoffs. The devaluing of the regular season is another thing. The regular season's already too long. Yeah, the regular season should be 60 games. And, like, we love this sport, 
maybe too much. If you've listened to this podcast, we could make better choices. But even then, the games between 60 and 80 kind of drag. Even if you're in a tight playoff race, which we are right now, it's sort of like this could wrap up around 60 to 65 games and then go to the playoffs, and I think that would be perfect. It's never going to happen because they're not going to cut a huge amount of revenue out. Neither the union nor the league really wants that. But for the quality of the season, yeah, I think it would be better. So to expand it and to move in the other direction, I think that's a mistake. Yes, and it's not like when baseball added the second wild card. There's a lot of the same arguments for it as is what LeBron is saying. You know, like you get another mm-hmm. uh, potentially deserving team in there. It, it it's more fun. It adds uh, it adds a bit of randomness, um, and it, it makes it kind of more more interesting. Gives more fans things to talk about. The thing is, baseball previously only had four teams per conference in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a much higher bar of entry. And even now, there's there's only five teams, and one of those teams only gets one game. Right? In yeah. total, it's 10 teams. It's So those arguments make sense in a sport where, you know, there's a much, much higher bar to make the postseason than in any other uh, major North American sport. In hockey, yeah. I don't really think it makes sense. You end up with a lot of... You, en- you end up with essentially mediocre teams kind of fighting it out to, you know, have a, a chance at a Cinderella run. And that's not, like, incredibly fun or rewarding to me, where I think one of the issues I have with hockey's playoff system, and it's not a major issue, it's just part and parcel with the sport, but if anything, it's too high variance. I'd like to see the better teams rewarded more, right? Because the regular season right now means almost nothing. Yeah, uh, you know, the President's Trophy is the true test of merit is one of those tweets that gets dunked on regularly on hockey Twitter. But, you know, it does it bake in some randomness when you have a playoff series like this, when the teams are pretty close, when a couple of bounces can decide it. And we've watched a lot of really, really good teams get beat in devastating fashion. Tampa's a good example. Washington is another for a lot of years. And so I think that there's enough randomness now. The playoffs are unpredictable and exciting as they are. And I think that the regular season serves its function of screening out the worst teams, mostly, well enough. I don't want to impair that. I don't want to do anything. I really think I would just move back to a 1v8 structure in the playoffs to get some more variety in the first round series, and that would be it. So, yeah, I can't say that I see the appeal of this idea to me at all. I can see why LeBron is saying it, because, again, I think he's sourced from general managers. Yeah, no, I, again, LeBron is basically, like, a human um, voice memo app. Yeah. He's actually worth reading in his way, because he'll make clear to you how certain people who are influential in the league are thinking. Like, he's well-sourced. He's uh, a real journalist, by all means. It's just the quality of what he turns out is going to be directly reflective of the quality of what he takes in. There's not really a, like an analytic process that makes it better or questions it or refines it or whatever. You just kind of get what's being said and that's fine. But sometimes it means that you get things like this, where I think the people who aren't GMs and the people who, whose teams aren't currently like exactly in 17th or something should mostly reject this. So, yeah, uh, 
we actually got asked to go after a bad idea last night, also, by uh, listener Kano Emo. And this listener suggested, could you talk about the stats when scoring first? Little factoids that you see on broadcasts and why they're kind of silly. Um, the thing about the stats when scoring first thing is that, of course, you do better when you score first because that guarantees you've scored at least one goal. You know, like, it is pretty intuitive that you're going to be a lot better because it's removed the possibility that you're going to get shut out and you've had a lead. It doesn't really say that much that meaningful when it's like, oh, this team is way better when they score first. Well, yeah, they ought to be. I don't know that it tells us a hell of a lot about the actual team. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. And I guess when it comes to these these stats um the other thing you have to keep in mind when when it's like a scoring first thing a one goal lead doesn't feel safe because you're obviously just one shot from it being tied again but if it's tied you have a roughly 50 percent shot again that's why the odds are so high right because even if you give up a goal right here's a simple way to think about it you have two even teams team a goes ahead on team b right so now the probability that each of them scores the next goal, let's ignore score effects, is 50-50, right? Mm-hmm. If team A scores the goal, they, get, they go up 2 nothing. Let's just say they, they automatically essentially win when they're up 2 nothing, right? Or it's a very, very strong lead. Mm-hmm. If team B scores that goal, it goes back to a 50-50 game. So just based on those simple math, you're about 75% to win if you go up one nothing. Yeah, and so you'd expect teams to be dominant in that circumstance, and it's... I don't know if you should really get all that kind of blown away by a team. It's like, oh, they win 78% of the time when they score first. Wow, cool. Good for them, you know? (laughs) Um, And it's one of those things that's quoted as if it's like deep meaning about like what a machine and professionalism this team is. And, you know, maybe in like extreme circumstances, you can say something about it's like this team never blows a lead. But even then, that's the sort of thing that's subject to, to variance. I remember for a long stretch... Uh, it was either last year or the year before that, but the Leafs were undefeated when they carried a lead into the third. And that was a couple years after the Leafs being infamous for blowing leads in the third. And it's just, there's a lot of up and down there. So, you know, these things are fine, but I don't think they really mean anything. Yep, basically. It's the NHL community, um, and by that I mean, I guess the, the media that, that talks about this stuff is very kind of stats illiterate which is not a huge problem in general, um, except that they seem very unwilling to learn. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, the good news is now we're about to get real-time puck tracking, so at least we can rely on these people to interpret it for us. Oh, God. Uh, I I can't wait for the first, like, so-and-so player had the smallest amount of sprints in a game. Yeah, maybe he should get it the fuck together. You know what? I, what someone's going to do at one point is that they're going to do the mass of some player times the speed that they were traveling at. And it's going to be like, oh, uh, I don't know. Kyle Clifford absorbed this much force in a body check and everyone will be like, yeah. And it'll be like, does that mean anything or really matter? And I'll be like, no, but it's awesome. I <laughs> mentioned this. We were talking about this in Slack and um, the UFC has this like kind of I assume it's essentially just a punching bag that registers the force 
um, that it was that was applied to it when it when it gets punched. I don't know how accurate it is. I, I I would imagine not terribly because a lot of things, if anyone's familiar with like martial arts or, or, or punching, um, you know that a lot of things can impact the power of a punch besides the actual power of the punch, mm-hmm. right? Like the when you're facing someone, where you hit them, their balance, their equilibrium at that time matters a lot, similar, just as much mm-hmm. as, you know, the actual amount of force. Um, and measuring force is like kind of tricky. It's like those carnival games, right? Like those aren't actual like real calibrated, like, oh, this is exactly how much power is being put into this. Wait, what? <laughs> You're telling me I'm not the strongest man at the county fair anymore? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry you have uh... to learn this way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there's this UFC fighter named Francis Ngannou, uh, a heavyweight, gigantically powerful. And apparently they had him do this and... They then they used it in marketing where it's like in Ganu, he hits a, he hits you as hard as being hit by a Ford Escort moving at twenty five miles an hour or something like that. And it's like like this became like a part of his thing where it's like, yeah, he hits as hard as a Ford Escort. Um and it, it's just I always thought it was like incredibly stupid. Where it's like I, I that doesn't mean anything really. I mean, it's yeah, there's a little bit different in terms of how that force is projected from like his fist versus the front end of a car. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm no physicist, but it seems to me like there are one or two other things that might go into it. But yeah, I, I mean, there's going to be a lot of that. And most of it, it's like, okay, it's kind of fun or whatever like that. And you can have factoids and stuff like that that don't really matter a whole lot. It's just at some point when you do want to try and learn something meaningful about like what's happening in the hockey game, you're a bit like, okay, I'd, I'd like someone to try and know what they're talking about some of the time. Anyway. But I don't think I'm ever going to get that. So. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so I think that just about wraps it up for us, right? Yep. Okay, cool. So you can find all of mine and Foodman stuff at pensionpenpuppets.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Foodman. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.